So when you look at an artist, most of the time you have an artist who comes out, has a hit record or whatever the case may be, and we think he's the new dude. And by the second album, the album's whack. We never hear from this guy right, again. Right. I mean, we we could talk over ten thousand names. We could just run them down the list. The story right? of the industry. When you listen to Fat Joe, eight albums in every single time. I have a hit record. This time last year, it was Make It Rain. Yeah. Welcome to the Backstory Podcast. I'm your host, Kobe Cole, and this episode is about one of my favorite people in the music business. Someone who I've literally watched from his humble beginnings in this industry 27 years ago. He was making music then and still has the track record today, which is very rare air in hip-hop. Who am I talking about? Fat Joe. The charismatic MC, who, unlike most artists, have been blessed with a career in hip-hop, has always been a man of the people. There's something you got to know, Kobe Cole. There's a reason why you personally love Fat Joe. It's I've remained humble through my whole career. Mm -hmm. Through ups and downs, through big, through small, whatever, I've always, the number one rule of the game is relationships and to remain humble. Living that street life before rap. He literally came from the bottom. Me and my girl, man, we might as well just share it for the world. How when I met her, I didn't have no money. I used to sleep in the apartment in the Bronx, mattress on the floor, radio, TV. I had no money. So she used to have to borrow from her father to bring home some money sometimes when wow. we had to eat. What you're going to get out of this episode is an artist who is honest and straightforward, even when he makes mistakes. Mm -hmm. Of course, I did the wrong thing, and I bought every guy in my crew a $70,000 Cadillac truck, had like 20 trucks in the Bronx riding around. Wow. We was going to Miami, popping too many bottles. That's another side of right. you need to talk about. Okay. He introduced the world to his crew, the Terror Squad, including an artist named Big Punisher, who became an instant superstar that we lost too soon. If you don't know, this is Big Dog Punisher coming out soon. Know what uh, I mean? Hey, yo, Punisher, down. get on him. Yeah. Check it. Yeah. I rush your crib like a Jehovah's Witness. Load up an explosion, infants. Hold up, did you notice my heroic entrance? I'm so relentless in this field of rap. Everything is real and fact. Fully backed by bullies who be peeling Throughout this episode of the Backstory Podcast, I'll share clips from several interviews we have done over the years. One thing you'll notice is that Joe is such a lovable guy. Not many people have a bad thing to say about Fat Joe. And if they do, you're looking at him with a side eye. But there's something else special about Joe. He is and has always been a great storyteller. He got the stupidest house on the beach over there. Yeah. And he stays, all jokes aside, he stays there two days a year. Really? He got a house that me and you mm -hmm. with like... <laughs> eat off the floors like we would be like yo i, I would never leave right i would never go nowhere this is the story of a kid from the streets of the bronx who gets turned on to hip-hop in its infancy and it changes his life with a career spanning four decades and counting not only is fat joe a great mc who has lasted through several generations of hip-hop but he's an engaging personality when joe talks Everyone listens. What I'm saying is I had that situation at Relativity Records where I was there and I was a team player, happy to be there. And then I thought that we were broke. I thought Relativity had no money. So they were shooting $20,000 videos for me for oh, Flow Joe. Shit is real and all that. And then I was like, all right, team player, we starting out, we brand new. 
Then they went and signed Bone Thugs and shot him a million dollar video. I was like, yo, hold the fuck up. Like, I got to get off this label. These niggas don't believe in me. And it's even more evident today during the COVID crisis, which has impacted us all. Joe has taken to Instagram to deliver a daily talk show with a wide variety of guests from all aspects of life, coining himself the nickname Jopra. <laughs> he also happens to be a friend and one of my favorite artists. I was one of the first people to show him love. And coming up in this episode, I'll share a bona fide conversation starter if you ever get a chance to meet Fat Joe across paths with him. This is the backstory of Fat Joe. Oh, yo, we're going to do it up. <laughs> okay. We're going to do it up. We're going to represent for my man Kobe Cole, number one DJ. Good looking. Nah, man, Philly and all that. Joe has always been a great supporter of mine throughout my career. And we have both grown so much in this industry from our youthful days of just some kids that love this thing called hip hop to actually having careers. So what is his backstory? Yo, got your stuff? You got the money? Sure has the money. I don't have to hear with me right now. Let me get about the money. Gangsta, gangsta, gangsta. You know who you stepping to? This is Fat Joe for Gangsta. Must be crazy, man. They ain't no pretending. Shit is real. That was a commercial for his debut album, Represent, in 1993. Joe was known as the fat gangster back then, and he had a love for gangster movies. And in this introductory commercial for his debut album, Represent, he reenacts a horrifying scene from the 1983 classic Brian De Palma gangster film, Scarface. When a young Cuban, Tony Montana, fresh off the boat, tries to impress the drug lord, Frank Lopez, and his sidekick, Omar, by meeting up with some Colombians in a Miami Beach motel room to buy some cocaine. The deal was set up and quickly goes south, as all the Colombians wanted to do is rob them of the cash for the coke. But Tony smartly didn't bring it with him into the room. So the Colombians go to torture mode as they handcuff Tony and his brother to the shower rod and proceed to dismember Tony's younger brother until Tony's right-hand man, Manny, comes to the rescue. Okay, I'll admit it. I'm a super fan of Scarface. But interesting enough, Fat Joe was as well. In addition to other gangster movies or tales that he would channel these moments in his videos, he was unlike any other MC at that time, not just because he was Latino, he just figured out a persona and he immediately stood out. Fat Joe the Gangster was born Joseph Antonio Cartagena in the 70s in the Bronx borough of New York City, a mix of Colombian and Puerto Rican. To get to know Joe, you have to understand where he came from and how that impacted his life as an MC. I have mentioned this in several episodes of the Backstory Podcast. The Bronx, the birthplace of hip hop born in America's epicenter of extreme poverty, violence, and desperation. At one time, the Bronx was a thriving community. But towards the end of the 60s, that started to change. Businesses moved out. Crime moved in. People were left with an overwhelming sense of fear and hopelessness. No job opportunities, schools being closed down, shop owners leaving. Just imagine World War II bombed out Berlin. It was just a, a war zone. Arson, murder, robbery, rape, burglary. It was considered the murder capital in the United States. The worst ghetto in all of the United States. Similar to other big cities during this era in American history, the Bronx is an example 
of the results of systematic racism and its effect over generations. The Bronx at one point was full of middle class and working class neighborhoods in the 50s and 60s, which started to integrate as black and Hispanic families moved in. If you ever saw the movie Bronx Tale, it kind of paints the picture of this time and the tension that was growing between white and black and Hispanic communities. As neighborhoods became blacker and browner, the swift reaction was fueled by racist real estate policies and agents and developers, which led to white flight to suburban communities that left inner cities all across the country stripped of resources, which is provided by the tax revenue, which helps job creation, education, and public safety. Sounds very familiar today. Many don't realize that when it comes to most development anywhere in the world, it's usually on the backs of the poor and people of color. For example, they don't build trash dumps in wealthy neighborhoods. The Bronx is a case history of white flight and development colliding with awful results. So, for instance, as America went through an extended period of growth and expansion through public infrastructure projects after World War II, it would change the course of travel in the nation's largest city as America fell in love with cars and driving. So they had to kind of fix all the roads. For instance, I-95, which is the longest north-south interstate highway in the world, starting in Miami and ending in Maine at the Canadian border. This 1,900-mile highway would have to pass through America's largest city. And where do you think that they would put this road? Not much in Manhattan or Queens, but it's like they took a knife and cut open the Bronx, splitting the north and south sections of the borough. The George Washington Bridge was a major part of I-95. It was already the world's busiest bridge when built in the late 1920s, but they decided to add a lower deck to the bridge to increase capacity. This created a domino effect for the Bronx. I-95 was connected to the George Washington Bridge, and as you enter the Washington Heights section of Manhattan coming over the bridge, part of this lower deck created several highways that would get you through the city and up north to New England and Maine. This construction took place in the late 50s and early 60s. Once off the bridge for eight-tenths of a mile in Manhattan, you're on the Trans-Manhattan Expressway which then quickly connects you with the Cross Bronx Expressway. When they built the Cross Bronx, the developers decided to run the highway through the working-class neighborhoods of the South Bronx, specifically the Tremont section. This move displaced thousands of people and businesses and contributed to white flight as this, along with several other highway projects in that area at that time, made it easier for people to move further out of the city. The main person responsible for these decisions was a man named Robert Moses. He helped develop and finance many of these projects. There's a book called The Power Broker about him that discusses how some of his decisions were harmful to the poor and working class throughout New York City. Once the Cross Bronx Expressway was built in conjunction with white flight, it created one of the fastest demographic shifts in history. For instance, in the early 50s, the South Bronx was 68 percent white. Ten years later, it's 68 percent black and Latino. And by the 70s, this once proud neighborhood was decimated. Many of the landlords stopped taking care of their buildings or just set them on fire for the insurance payments, leaving a shell shock community with nothing. So you can imagine this led to crime and violence levels unseen anywhere in America throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Things didn't improve. In 1980, when Ronald Reagan became president, he offered no help. Just more pain. President Reagan, in his televised speech on the economy, proposed 83 major program cuts. It was another blow to the South Bronx. And I'm asking that you join me 
in reducing direct federal spending by $41.4 billion in fiscal year 1982. Then add in the crack cocaine epidemic, which took over inner city America, and the Bronx was especially hit hard. The Bronx was a mess. But historically, in times of desperation, creative energy is the engine that drives opportunity. And a little up north of the Cross Bronx Expressway, next to the Major Deegan in the Morris Heights section of the Bronx, was an apartment complex, 1520 Sedgwick Avenue. And on August 12th, 1973, in the recreation room of that building, DJ Cool Hurt created what we now know as hip hop. One major street gang, the Black Spades, led by African Bombada, whom, after a trip to Africa, transitioned gang life into hip-hop life as he created the Universal Zulu Nation. The Bronx was a fertile ground with all of this energy building from those basement parties to block parties throughout the 70s as disco reigned in the clubs and on the radio. But on the streets of the Bronx, b-boys were creating this new art form that consisted of breakdancing, graffiti, and emceeing that would transform black and brown lives for generations. The Boogie Down Bronx would be the epicenter birthing African Bambata, Melly Mel, the Cold Crush Brothers, Busy B, Lovebug Starsky, Tila Rock, who actually had the first single on Def Jam called It's Yours. It's one of my favorite hip-hop songs. If you don't know it, you need to go to YouTube and check it out. Then there was the next wave of Bronx MCs who grew up absorbing this energy. A young immigrant from England, Slick Rick, a homeless kid, KRS-One and the late DJ Scott LaRock, who was a social worker, would form Boogie Down Productions. On the radio with the first major hip-hop presence was a Bronx DJ, Red Alert, and he had the entire New York City attention through his popular mixes on Friday and Saturday nights. Behind the scenes, a young Chris Lighty and his crew of friends would brand themselves the Violators. Growing up in the Forest Hill Projects in the South Bronx while all this creative energy was happening was a young Joe Cartagena. His older brother, Angel, was more in tune with what was happening with hip-hop and would turn Joe on to the music. If you listen to the song, The Shit Is Real, Fat Joe tells the story of his childhood. A stick-up kid as a teen, drug dealer by 16. He was a real gangster. It's a miracle he made it out of that time without serious jail time or death. In the projects where he lived, there was another movement brewing led by an MC producer named Lord Finesse, who dropped an album in 1990. Diamond D, who was an MC and producer who signed a major deal with Mercury Records. Showbiz and AG, who were also signed to a deal. They were all on the radio, touring around the country. Meanwhile, Joe was back in the hood hustling. Growing up poor and on welfare, he was determined to make a way for himself. And frankly, being an artist wasn't something he was serious about. Joe was in the streets hustling heavy. Plus, he was doing a little graffiti. But Diamond D who was an underrated as an MC and producer and was making some incredible music, saw something in Joe. The DITC crew, a.k.a. Digging in the Crates crew, similar to Boogie Down Productions and Universal Zulu Nation before them, were making a name for themselves as they stayed true to their Bronx roots. One day, Diamond D steps to Fat Joe, invites him to the studio, and they do an intro for Red Alert, who plays it on the radio. So all in New York City could hear Fat Joe. This has always been a great way for artists to get a deal, especially in New York City do a radio promo for a popular show, and get discovered. Here is an example of an early Red Alert intro from Fat Joe and Diamond D. Right about now, I'm in the studio with my producer, Diamond D. Cool DJ Red Alert from 98.7 Kids. We're about to get live from the brothers and sisters out there. Hit me. 
And I work hard to achieve my goals in life. Never wanted the gun and never did want the knife. I was hyped and I only got hyper. Shot so many brothers you would think I was a sniper. I grew up in a bit out of the black neighborhood. And I never stood because I was a hood. I was a thug, but never did drugs go. And all the kids said that they hated me fat, yo. I was just like the cat working the minute the black sheep in my family. I admit it, but who's the blame? Cause the same shame on me. And when I look back, it was all in the family. I was one that grew up on welfare. So I didn't care if a brother said We would go to the park and just stop You know that was the other kid that left with the loss I'm not gonna front, cause yo I lost many And yes I got robbed and stuck for plenty See, no one's up in this type of environment The boss to get them the slums, I'm not buying it So I kept on and stop for the best beat Pushing for my balls, cause nothing can stop me Brothers try to front, they still try to play me though But look at me now, I'm rhyming on the radio Thanks to God and a lot of hard work I wanna say peace to the poor master red alert Here's Diamond D talking about working with Fat Joe on an episode of the Combat Jack show. So we were doing promos for Red, and, um, you know, yo, I, I took Joe around, you know, about, about five different labels. They all turned him down. Right. You know, Jive, uh, PWL Chemistry. I forgot the other ones, but, you know, so finally, anyway, I think Red Alert hollered at Chris Lighty. Right. You know, they were all down with the Violator movement. And that's when Chris Lighty stepped in and signed him to... Um, to violate it and then to relativity. Sidebar, I'd like to say a RIP to the late Combat Jack, who was one of my inspirations for the Backstory podcast. So anyway, as the story goes, Joe was hyped about getting airtime on Red Alert's radio show. Everyone listened to that show in New York City, so it was for sure a good look. Joe went on to do Amateur Night at the Apollo and won four weeks in a row. A Puerto Rican MC from the Bronx, overweight and confident, well-versed in the hip-hop culture. There was something special, and Diamond D, to his credit, saw it. At the time, Diamond D was being managed by Chris Lighty, and Chris went to the streets to find Fat Joe and sign him to Violator through Relativity Records. At that time, Relativity was just getting started. I remember the mix show rep, his name was Muhammad Ali, and he would be my connect for Relativity Music. Relativity was a young, hot new label that had Common, who was initially known as Common Sense, and when he got his deal, he was still a student at FAMU. No ID, the producer, worked with Common on that project. The Beat Nuts, who were great producers and artists, and Chi Ali. So Fat Joe kind of fit in perfectly. For Flow Joe, I signed for like 15 grand. $15,000? Like 15 grand was my first record That was your deal. signing? The that signing was my bonus? signing, yeah. How much did you make off your first album? Like, oh, did you get a, man. did you get a, Nothing, like. Nothing, no way, no royalties. Publishing. I never made a, a dollar off of royalties until I went independent. I sold two million records. Ago? Yeah, I went, I, I sold two million records on Jose. I sold four million on Big Pun and we never saw a royalty the whole time. Because the business got something called funny math. Okay. So it's like they give you 18 points, and then but you recoup everything. In the spring of 1993, Fat Joe released his debut single, Flow Joe. The beat went so hard with those horns that set it off. It was produced by Diamond D. Flow Joe was an instant hit. I have discussed this time period for the New York MC. It was a strange time. Hip-hop had shifted to the West Coast. The year prior, Dr. Dre released The Chronic and introduced the world to Snoop Doggy Dogg. A year later, Snoop Dogg was facing a murder charge, and his album Doggy Style was the most anticipated album in hip-hop history. New York was still the business center for hip-hop, but the energy had definitely shifted West. 
Fat Joe was a breath of fresh air for new talent coming out of the East Coast. We needed this. Here is industry legend Steve Stout talking about the impact of Flo Joe. Flo Joe was bigger than you because it, it said something. It was like, um, it, it was the boom bap at the right time that everybody felt that they could be a part of. It was a Puerto Rican kid and he was a fat Puerto Rican kid and he was talking that shit. And um, it was like, it was one of the early records that really got me excited that I could be in this business. On July 27th, 1993, Fat Joe releases his debut album, Represent, with production mostly from Diamond D, but Lord Finesse and Showbiz AG produced some tracks off the album. The second single was Watch the Sound, featuring Diamond and Grand Poobah, who at the time was just leaving Brand Nubians and was a solo artist. The one thing about Joe that stood out early was how well-respected he was from fellow rappers and producers. Represent was a mild success. He didn't sell a lot of albums, and he definitely needed a lot of work as an MC. but he was on the map, respected and enjoying the rap life. Joe was a homebody to New York. He didn't venture that far out of the Bronx much less New York City, even while having big songs. So in 93, I brought him to Philadelphia, but little do I know or remember that it was his first performance. He tells me this years later. I put him up in a fly hotel suite overlooking the city of Philadelphia, and he loved the room and didn't want to leave to do the show. We discuss this all the time. Oh. 1993, you get started with Flo Joe. Mm -hmm. You was a, a kid fresh out of New York. Fresh in there, Forget New York, out of the Bronx, out Four the Corners. Bron out of the Bronx. I never left Four Corners. <laughs> you know, you was the first. You was the first to bring me out here to no Philly. No doubt. I remember we did a show at the You know, I never ever line. left New York City in my life. Yep. First place I ever came to, we did Camden, right? Yep. And then they was real nervous. They was real nervous. They was like, oh, Right man. across from the jail over there. Yeah, they thought it was going to pop off, legendary. Yep. Yep. But you was the first ever. Yep. And then that, that we stood in the hotel. I remember I got that you was a like big. Nah, that was big time. <laughs> Yo, Cole, I never stood in a hotel. You know, I dropped Flojo. I was still in the projects. <laughs> I was looking around like, yo, this is... Dude, we put you up in the yeah. corner of the suite. And he was like, I think I'm... Because I, I was like, you want to hang out tonight? He's like, no, I think I want to go back to the room and just chill out. That was it, man. Yo, Cole, that was like big for me. I, was, I made it. No I doubt. had a hotel room. Now, if you ever meet Fat Joe and ask him about me, he will tell you that story. One of my favorite songs from his first album was The Shit Is Real. On this particular song, he had a DJ premiere remix and filmed a gritty street video. Primo was the hottest producer at that time next to Dr. Dre. And for a new artist, Fat Joe was getting a good look. Joe was always giving back to his hood. In this transition period from really being an artist away from the street life, Joe was giving back to his hood and he opened up a store. Listen to how he was thinking in this time. Yo, I got a store up in the Bronx called Fat Joe's Halftime. And what's that all about? It's just, it's just about, you know, investing back in the community and having like a foundation. Too many rappers before me, you know what I'm saying? So millions of records. And then bring you it see back them to now the and they, and, they, and they like poor, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So so I'm like, yo, what's going to happen when this rap career is over? You know what I mean? Okay. I got to have something there, you know what I'm okay. saying? Okay, and what kind of store is it? It's just a clothing store. We sell like... Bad, bad jeans, you know, Pele Pele. Okay, oh, the fly, you know I mean? the fly, yeah. Come down. It's All the, the fly getting. And where's this at? This is in the Bronx? Yeah, 150th of Melrose in the Bronx. Okay. We're right. about to open up another one on Sugar Hill in Harlem. As Joe settled into the life of a rapper, just as he was hustling in the streets in his younger days, he was now hustling on the business side. Every day's a hustle, yo. The bottom line is 
know what I'm saying? You got to end up with a, with, with a profit at the end of the day. So no matter how you go out there and get it, you know what I'm saying? You got to end up winning, you know what I'm saying? You can't stay home all around the way thinking you're going to get this money, you know what I'm saying? Okay. Go out okay. there and do I used to scalp tickets, sell T-shirts, you know, whatever it took. Whatever to, it took, huh? To get some money, man, for real. Joe was also so keen on his community and making sure the people were good and that he was accessible. I just can't leave the community. If Fat Joe can't come, if I can't make a demo and play for the cats in the corner and they ain't rocking to it, then, then I ain't rocking. You know what I mean? I got that. I got, can't represent. I can't represent around the world if I don't represent for my peoples. Know what I mean? I got to be here with my peoples. Know what I mean? It's no big deal for none of these kids to see Fat Joe here. They see me every day. There was a two-year gap between his first album and his second album. And as I mentioned earlier, the winds of hip-hop was changing. The East-West battle had heated up, and Joe was super focused on being from the birthplace of hip-hop and New York's importance to the culture. It was around the time of Joe's second album that Snoop Dogg and the Dog Pound did a song called New York, New York. And in the midst of this tension between coasts, he comes to New York City to film a video with him stepping on the buildings, and that did not go over well with East Coast rappers. So again, it's 1995, and Joe is ready to come back. You know what I'm saying? Maybe two, three years ago, when Snoop was hitting, everybody was like, yo, you know what I'm saying? Yo, East Coast ain't going to rock no more. How the right. West was one. Right. You know what I'm saying? Now, AZ come out the box selling 60,000, more B, 40,000, Raekwon, 60, 70,000. Everybody from the East is coming out, blowing up the spot, going gold. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So now everybody's quiet over there. So my man Ice Cube ain't really selling records like he used to. Right. So he's trying to diss the East with that joint West Up. Right. Know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We ain't trying to hear that though. Okay, you know stri- strictly from the East. Oh my God. Strictly from the East. <laughs> On his second album, he debuts a fellow rapper from the Bronx who was a big fellow like him, Big Punisher. And he came to my show to introduce the world to his rap twin with a freestyle. Hey, yo, Punisher, what's up, man? What up, yo? Let's get some How long is this beat? This beat is last. I'll, I'll start it over, all right? You hold ready? on, hold up. Yeah, yeah. Let my man. If you don't know, this is Big Dog Punisher coming out soon. Know what uh, I mean? Hey, yo, Punisher, down. get on him. Yeah. Check yo. it. Yo. Yeah. I rush the crib like a Jehovah's Witness Load up in explosion infants Hold up, did you notice my heroic entrance? I'm so relentless in this field of rap Everything is real and fact Fully backed by bullies who be peeling caps I'll sack a rapper like a linebacker Play my rhyme backwards You can hear the devil speak his mind with fine graphics I pay dues, I spray crews Look up Joey Crack Mothers be like he's bad news Running this racket From New York to Montego Slaughtering people Bringing tons of keys from Puerto Rico Rather be feared than love Because the fear lasts longer These weak ass niggas no, we stronger than these weaklings seeking for respect that ain't there. Knuckleheads beware, there's mad tension in the air. Tommy guns for fun, shotties for block parties. What first lads, he's up your insides like a fifth of Bacardi. Corva ambulette, this man's wet. Bullets cut him down from the root up just like a Gillette. Razor, which I keep hitting in my O. Ready to stand out at any ad out that wants to quarrel. These heads want me for some tax evasion. But at the fact that somebody's getting loose, he's like occasion. Uh, I'm all about business and enterprise and advising financial advice. On franchising the widen their horizons, yeah. devising ideas with masterminders, moving on and stash of diamonds. First we get the cash, then we laugh like miners. Don't get me wrong, I'm a funny bastard, but when it come to money done, I'm not the one to laugh with the math for what cash can bring me, brothers. Uh. Me and my demon lovers, blasting, laughing, high heaters back to ringling brothers. Yeah. Believe the mothers, you the best jester still. I'm investing mills on a hunch over lunch, puffing on the Chesterfield. Who uh. test a real scandalous? Woo. I'm at the Sands in Los Angeles, planning hits with anonymous philanthropists, Spanish kids. 
close to God like evangelists, chopping niggas up and making sandwiches. Sparks are blasting from Uwaks blasting. A face gets blasted for street crews blasting. Forever beat, forever grief. It's the same thing tomorrow. Eulogies of sorrow. Non-stop dramas. Chumps think they hard smoking commas. I'm soft and still, my son. Light is a ton. The connections I got, I can lamp while you get done. Remember that. I dismember cats to act. A plain and simple fact is I react on impact. I'm plenty versatile. Wow. Having screaming like a head short a few bows. No more slabs and dollar cabs. Strictly Lexus coops with my truth. Silver alpine blast. Extra dark tents for sticky events. Suspense makes the lead dispense. Uh. Oh baby, all you massage when I'm feeling intense. <laughs> Fly my knees with keys. Take to their bodies. Transporting through the airport securities. In cahoots with the Sam Warren authorities. Hated by majorities. Love yeah. by minorities. Yo, yo. Uh. I keep my desert eagle cock back in my tuxedo with my top hat. What you funny mother uckers know about that? Looking Dougie fresh in my double breast like a pimp. Eating shrimp, gumbo bubble bathing in the jumbo jet. Set on autopilot. Gonna fly it to Porto Vallarta. Charter a chopper and top of the Hyatt. Buy it and sky get back to the Bronx. Stop in the northern Philly to see who's been recently stomped for being funny. And mix some money with choking. You're bound to be finding Hoboken. Choking, soaking in blood with your mug broken. Hoping you get past that open casket. Swearing to God, that's it. No more playing now that I can laugh with. Yeah, Billy, yeah. you know what time. Fat Joe. It's Fat Joe with Once the again, freestyle rhyme. You can it's take him out. Joe, didn't know, representing real life for my man Kobe uh, Cole, no radioactive. Although the Terror Squad wasn't a formal thing yet, this was the plan starting to form. The second album for any rapper can be stressful. Many can never live up to the hype, but Joe was different. His first album wasn't a major success, but you could tell that he was taking things more seriously on the second album. The album title, Jose, Jealous Ones, Envy. As you listen to Jose Joe, he wasn't a rookie no more. He was way more understanding of the business aspect of the hip-hop industry. Yo, the new album, Jealous Ones Envy, came out last week. Right. We debuted like number six in Billboard R&B charts this week. Okay. Madheads bought it, mad people in Philly bought it. We appreciate it. And whoever ain't get it, don't sleep on it. Now, okay. because it's hot. Now, what's the difference between oh. this album and the first album? Tell Huge us. Huge difference. It's like the whole lyrical... The, the lyrics is like 100 times better. The beats is tighter. Know what I mean? It's just, it's just doper. It's just, it was, it was more analyzed. It got more love. Know what I'm saying? I got a joint with KRS on it. Right. A joint with Raekwon on it. It's, it's, it's hot, yo. It's okay. Hot. So basically, these last two years, you just been in the lab, just putting it together. Analyzing, yo. Okay. Know what I'm saying? Nas okay. came out. Biggie came out. Everybody came out and made it real competitive, you know okay. what I'm saying? Okay. So in order for me to survive, I had to come through. You could tell he wanted it more and expectations were different. He was also starting the process of building his empire. So it's fitting that the first single was called Success. That's for all my grimy, shisty heads on the corners getting that money. So what, what, what made you come out with that, man? What was up with that? Yo, I was just like, yo, I went home to a club. I was in a club one night. I drank mad Moet, no sad. Went home and I was just like, yo, I gotta make a nice new anthem for, the for brothers. all the hustlers and all, <laughs> the, all the true players, know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I came up with that, know what I'm saying? Everybody's embracing it, know what I'm saying? Everybody's feeling it. Video is tight. We had um, Raekwon, Ghost, LL, Rosie Perez, know what I'm saying? Big Nas, Brand Nubians, the whole digging in the crates crew. It's hot, yo. It's just hot, man. We come, we coming with a vengeance. 
You could also tell how much respect he had from his peers, including LL Cool J, who was still making relevant music in this era. We talked about his collabos. Got that, that album be as hot. We got to look, look out for this joint we did on LL Cool J's album. Me, Mark Deep, and um, Keith Murray. What? We doing the video next week. It's okay. called I Shot Ya. Oh, really? It's hot. Okay. It's okay. Hot. It's all so, up. But um, we here, we here, we crushing all foes and competitors. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> One song on Jose, in my opinion, that really showed Joe's growth as an MC was called Fat Joe's in Town. It was my favorite song in this album produced by L.E.S., who was in Nas's camp. This it's is official. the original. This is your favorite song Fat Joe ever did. All right? The, the Jealous One's Envy album, or second album. Now, L.E.S. had done Life's a Bitch from Illmatic, Sugar Hill from AZ, and Nostradamus. So Joe was attracting more star power on this album. He wanted to be respected as an MC. It was refreshing to see that because most rappers rap for the check and not for the culture. Another track on the album, Envy, featured a sample of Marvin Gaye's sexual healing, and we discussed sampling in that era. Yeah, I got lucky with that one because that was before they was clearing samples. <laughs> oh, you didn't get that cleared? No. What? <laughs> Second album, right? Yeah, that's before yeah. James Brown made it public that he wanted some money. You know, you got to clear samples now. Yeah. But I caught it before that. Jose had a modest increase in sales from the first album. But Joe noticed his new label mates on Relativity Records from Cleveland, Bone Thugs and Harmony, were getting treated much differently than he was. Yes, they were discovered by the late Easy e and signed through his label. But Joe felt Relativity didn't respect him as an artist, so he left. What I'm saying is I had that situation at Relativity Records where I was there and I was a team player, happy to be there. And then, and then I, I thought that we were broke. I thought Relativity had no money. So they were shooting $20,000 videos for me for oh, Flo Joe. And, and, and relativity and, and uh, shit is real and all that. And then I was like, all right, team player, we starting out, we brand new. Then they went and signed Bone Thugs and shot him a million-dollar video. I was like, yo, hold the fuck up. Like, I got to get off this label. These niggas don't believe in me because they only shooting $20,000 videos for me. So I told them, listen, love you guys. I got to go. They always say in business, timing is everything. Fat Joe was building a crew. And his first project was an artist named Big Punisher, also known as Big Pun, who Joe shopped to all the labels and got turned down, except one, Steve Rifkin at Loud Records, which at the time was home to the Wu-Tang Clan and Mob Deep, who were both on fire at that time. In Pun, Joe the Mogul would achieve the success he had been wanting as an artist. We discussed what was it about Pun that Joe saw. And, um... You know, I study everybody, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm really really uh watch and see who's nice, who's whatever. And I walked out of Bodega in the Bronx, and uh, I seen some kids rhyming, and I'm like, Yo, what this fat Puerto Rican kid doing right here? <laughs> and then he was like, Hold on, hold on, let me go, let me go, let me go. Then he started rhyming. He was like, I blow the I blow the moon out the sky and blow the sun away. And he was saying stuff I never heard a rapper say before, and I was just like, Oh my god. For real, for real, I couldn't even sleep that night. That next day, I brought him to the studio, put him on the album, Jealous One's Envy. Like, I couldn't right, sleep. Right. And I knew because I knew Puffy when he was broke. I seen what he did with Biggie. And I was like, uh-oh. 
I gotta go. For the Boricuas. Come on, let's it, go. Yo, bit. Yeah. Yo, yo, pun, let's go. And then, you know, his first single, we made sure it was for the ladies. Right. We made sure we dressed him in that Versace. We got him right. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So he could take us to that next level. In the summer of 1997, they released a single, I'm Not a Player. The original version, which featured a sample of the classic OJ song, Darling, Darling, Baby. That version of the song would float around for several months until producer Nobody remixed it with R&B singer Joe and released it as Still Not a Player in March of 1998. The song was an instant smash, and Pun's debut album Capital Punishment went platinum, making him the first Latino rapper to achieve that type of success. This was now the beginning of Terror Squad, and Fat Joe was a free agent, so timing was right for a major deal. I mentioned that Pun was shopped to all the labels and was turned down. And Steve Rifkin, to his credit, and we talked about this on the Wu-Tang Clan episodes, he was a shrewd businessman. He saw the potential of pun, but never in a million years did they think he was going to be this successful. So Joe had his terror squad, which consisted of pun, Cuban link, triple sace, Tony Sunshine, initially, and in later years, the squad would add Remy Ma who was discovered by Big Pun, and another member of the Terror Squad was a radio DJ from Miami who dabbled in producing. You may know this guy. His name is DJ Khaled. A few years later, we discussed DJ Khaled, who I was very familiar with because he was my radio brother. But the thing about Khaled, who, like Joe, was a budding mogul, too. Who, uh, Khaled over there. Who's blowing up the spot right 400, now. 400,000 sold, uh, 3 million ringtones. Wow. He's doing his thing independently. Wow. So, and, and shout out to DJ Khaled. He just... uh. Signed a We The Best slash Def Jam joint venture deal, mm-hmm. which uh, he's he's a big boy now. I have an interesting perspective knowing both DJ Khaled and Fat Joe from the beginnings of their careers. They are both good dudes. In a backstory episode from 2018, I asked DJ Khaled about Joe. I'm also the godfather of his beautiful daughter. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's when I say my brother, that's like my brother beyond my brother. Like he like blood. And he believed in me from the beginning. Besides us being brothers, he also embraced me, shouted me out on his records, let me go on the road with him, yep. um, stand right beside him, stayed at his house. You know, just like real family for years and, and still family for years. Actually, my first record deal, Koch. Right. He's the one that got the Koch deal Because the me. guy that signed him, yeah, Alan, Alan Grumblack. Alan Grumblack yeah, was uh, friends with now. Joe. And Joe told Alan yep. Grumblack, you got to do this deal with Khaled. Yep. He's the truth. Yep. Trust me. Yep. I, you just have to believe in me. Yep. And I remember we was in a meeting. He got the deal for me. And, I, and, and one of the biggest things that ever happened for that company was All I Do Was Win. You yeah. Gave them the now, biggest, we was the biggest artist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. no respect to nobody. Come yeah. out. Number wise, number wise, we was the no, biggest. They're, they're still, we're all the biggest. You know what I'm saying? But you know what I mean? Like yeah. we got, we also got to embrace our, our our stats. Right, right. You know what right, I'm saying? Yeah. And I put a lot. I think I think I put like four albums out over there. Yeah. And they were huge. We taken over. I'm so hood. Yeah. All I do is win. Yeah. Brown paper bag. Yeah. You know the list goes on. Big yep. massive hits. You know what I'm saying? And um, I think you know Joe. I I thank him, man, because he he. Really told Alan Grumbach to give me the deal, and and it wasn't about the the business of the deal because obviously I did the deal for nothing. Right, you know what I'm saying right. it was the opportunity, and um, he's just an amazing person, man. I love Joe, and I want to thank him for not only believing me, for being my brother. You know what I'm saying you're listening to the Backstory Podcast. 
I'm your host, Colby Kolb, and this is the story of Joey Crack. I call myself Joey Crack because ever since I was young, teacher would scream on me. I'd get up to uh, right on the board. The crack of my ass was short. So the girls would make fun of me. So, you know, that's why they call me Joey Crack. A.K.A. Fat Joe. Right. Joey Crack, what's the deal? What's up, my brother? And I hear you going in. And yeah, what, do y'all, man. what do y'all have in common? BX, the Major <laughs> Deacon, the Cross Bronx, the Cross Island, the George you know, Washington, you know, man, you know, the Dog's Neck, the White Stone, Yankee Stadium, the Shea Stadium, the Garden, Woo! to the Meadowlands, the BX for the prep, Evander Truman, what, what? Hey, yo. Hey, yo, I understand, And don't man. forget Jimmy's Cafe in the Oh, Brooks. don't ever forget Jimmy. Oh, don't forget Jimmy. Shout out to my man, Bent Rock, who worked with me on the radio and who also happens to be from the Bronx. And as you can hear with Joe, they have a lot of pride for the BX. So... The team was now coming together and poised for greatness, and Joe was focused on Terror Squad Records, which was now in high demand. Every label, you know, the labels that he went to with Big Punisher, was now courting Joe. And he tells a story about how he signed his new deal and the million-dollar check he received. (laughs) Yo, Cole, we dropped Big Pun. Mm -hmm. The record was going out of control. Still not a player, right? Still not a player. The minute I played it one time, Mm -hmm. I played it in... Hot 97, one mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. One time, that record. Mm-hmm. My phone rang. It was Leo Cohen. Mm-hmm. He was like, I'm downstairs. Wow. I was. I played that record one time when I played Big Pun before he sold records or anything. Mm-hmm. So I come and I get in this car, and he says, yo. It was a Bentley, right? No, nah, I think it was a truck or something. He okay. was like, yo, B, I want to sign Terror Squad Records to Def Jam. And big mistake that I didn't do it there, though, to be honest with you. Because at the time, he had just signed Rockefeller. He had mm-hmm. just signed Rough Riders. Before Jay-Z came mm-hmm. and did anything, he was like, I want to sign Terror Squad Records. But they wasn't talking that money. So the way the industry works is that the minute somebody bites at you, mm-hmm. the next phone call was Craig Kalman in Atlantic. They was mm-hmm. like, yo, we want to give you Terror Squad Records. Okay. Could we meet with you? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like if Kobe Cole is having lunch and he's like, yo, I'm about to d- make this you know, guy on the station, and every station is now calling yeah, this guy. I, I need right? that DJ right a there. frenzy. So I went to Atlantic Records, and they wouldn't let me leave. It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. It was me, my lawyer, and Craig Common, and my lawyer. You ever seen that movie? What was it? Um, it, it's, a, it it's, it's a TV show. If it wasn't The Honeymooners, it was some... You know how when you're about to get some... I'm dead broke. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm in but the you struggle. Were, I'm in the But grind. you were an established artist at that point, No, too. I was making money. I wasn't mm-hmm. dead broke. I mm-hmm. wasn't a millionaire. Though, right, right, right. Right? So my lawyer's like, oh, we went a million five. And he was like, well, we could give you a million one. And I'm sitting in the corner like, yo! Take it, take it, take it. Take it, it now! <laughs> and he was like, yo, Joe, just calm down. Mm-hmm. You hyperventilating mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Calm down. You showing them you thirsty. He's negotiating everything. Salaries. Workers, whatever the case may be. The point is, the craziest part of the whole story is I wanted to die. Mm-hmm. So when we finally signed on the spot, mm-hmm. right, on Atlantic Records, and we have a, my own label deal, he gives me the check. Mm-hmm. I wanted to die. I wanted to run around and show the whole United States Did you States make a copy of it, though, right? No, nah, I never made a you copy You didn't make a copy? It. I swear to God, I never you did. You gotta do that. I'm gonna tell you two more stuff, okay. funny stories. Okay. I ran around... I wanted to show the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I call Lord Finesse. I call, I start showing everybody the check. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is we come out of the um, record label. This guy just gave me a million something dollars. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, Joe, bye-bye, mm-hmm. and jumped on the train. 
You jumped on the train? He jumped on the train. Oh, he did. On the public transportation train, after writing me that check, he jumped on the train like it was nothing. Craig Common. Craig Common. Like, if it was like it didn't nothing. I was like, yo, where is... The goons, right. who's coming to get me for this right. money? Right, right, like right, the right, way right. I, the, the street right. way. I'm like, yo, I, yeah. I gotta have like ten rifles to my yeah. head. Like, well, you, you did call everybody. You better and tell get them. that money back. <laughs> you ain't supposed to tell everybody. That. So I'm like, yo, B. So it was, it was the most exciting moment of my life, man. I, I was, I just bugged out. I was mm-hmm. like, yo, this is crazy. We made it. Mm-hmm. Of course, I did the wrong thing, and I bought. Everybody in my crew, uh, $70,000 Cadillac truck, had like 20 trucks in the Bronx riding around. Wow. We was going to Miami, popping too many bottles because, you know, we was, you know, jet skiing, popping bottles, 40 of us, mm-hmm. you know. Joe would sign to Atlantic Records and release his third album, Don Cartagena, on September 1st, 1998, with the first title song featuring Puff Daddy, or as we know him today, Diddy who was coming off his massive debut album, No Way Out, after the death of the Notorious B.I.G. So Puff was pretty major at the time, and for him to do a hook with Fat Joe was major for Fat Joe. The Don Cartagena video was like a movie, similar to the promo I played a few minutes ago with Fat Joe reenacting Scarface. So the Don Cartagena video was sort of like telling the story of a kid growing up watching a gangster than becoming the gangster that takes that old gangster out. This is, uh, uh, what a sad face. Jealous, my friend, diamond lace. Trying to find a place to recline, shine my face. The sun wears warm. Under gun till I'm gone. That's where it's born on my Mars. That's a squad motto. Got beef, we call Raul. Dalo un trago. He go to war with a bottle. This particular song is a great example of Joe taking that next step as an artist. He was beloved by everyone in the industry, and they would always show love. Joe was a consummate New York rapper and had the respect of the streets in every borough. Originally, though, the single Don Cartagena was supposed to feature someone other than Diddy and created a bit of a debate within the Terror Squad. Pun wanted to do that chorus so bad. Wow. Like, he really wanted to do that chorus wow. so bad. And I was telling him, yo, we need that Puff Daddy look. Right. We need it. And he was like, yo, B, I'm telling you, twin, we strength ourselves. Wow. <laughs> you know, Pun was crazy. But maybe I ought to put him on that. This album featured an all-star production team, including DJ Premier, Buck Wild, L.E.S., The Beat Nuts, and production legend Marley Mall. Don Carter Jr. would sell 106,000 copies the first week and go on to go gold. The Terror Squad name was established, but Joe's reputation as a rapper continued to improve. You know, with me, I, I, my whole career has been like a work in progress. Okay. Where I've, I've been a student of the game, and I've been getting better and better, and I've been practicing at trying to get nicer and nicer and nicer, and um, I've been lucky to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So every two years, and two years from now, I'm going to listen to Make It Rain and be like, yo, I could have killed that this way a little bit better. S- somehow I just, I just, you know... Learn how to, how to It's like a, a, a seamstress Things for the team Were going very well As Joe worked on A Terror Squad Debut album The album Was released in 1999 Selling 250,000 copies Pun and Joe Were working on Their next album And sadly Tragedy struck the crew On February 7, 2000 Big Pun Who had struggled With his weight Ballooning to almost 700 pounds at one point Tragically died Of a heart attack At 28 This was a devastating blow to the terror squad, but even more on Joe. Pun and Joe were like brothers, and this moment would dramatically alter his life and career. When Pun passed away, I went through depression. But I'm not just saying depression lightly. Real depression. It was him, my sister, and my grandfather at the same time. So 
I was going through so much and everybody doubted me. Everybody, my closest friends. One night, uh, that same building we came from, my mother and father refused to move out the Bronx, even though I had money then. And uh, New Year's Eve, I got a tuxedo on. I'm in their house. Happy New Year. And I'm about to go outside and party. But I always spend New Year's with my family. And um, I come down the staircase in the projects. And I and this is like five of my best friends on earth. And they arguing with each other. And they're like, yo, he's done. Joe's over. He's done. He's another thing I tell you. I believe God made me see that. So I come out the staircase and I'm hearing the people I would die for. I'm rich. Like, I ain't got to be in the hood. I'm still playing softball with these guys. I'm still hanging out with them. I'm still trying to keep it real. You need rent money, I give you rent money. You go to jail, I bail you out. These are the guys that were talking about me, and God put me in that position. It was almost like a general hospital or soap opera. So one of my friends is like, you crazy, Joe's a hustler. He put pun on her, you crazy, this. So I came out, I was like, yo, y'all really believe that? And like, y'all think it's over for me? And that put something in me to go record big records. And even though I discovered Big Pun, the truth is he taught me how to make hit records. So he's literally sat me down. Like, I wouldn't do that for nobody no more. Literally sat me down. I was like, yo, right about here, you got to talk to the girls, Joe. Right about here, we got to keep it gangster. Here, we got to keep the work. And he literally showed me. So I knew what nobody else knew. Before Pun died, I was cool with just killing a million people, throwing the army fatigue on, Don Cartagena. But once he passed, <clears throat> I got used to the money. I got used to the fame. So I was like, oh, we got to hit some home runs. Through 2000 and 2001, the death of Pun weighed heavily on Joe. But it would be a defining moment because Joe's career was about to take another major leap. Irv Gotti, who at the time was the go-to guy in the business, he had massive hits from Ja Rule. After his early success with DMX, he worked with Joe on his fourth album, Jealous One, Still Envy, featuring production from Irv Gotti, Buck Wild, The Alchemist, Rock Wilder, Ron G, and more. He released his first single, We Thuggin' in the fall of 2001, that featured R. Kelly, which would end up being Fat Joe's biggest charting song up until that point. The boom of the track with R. Kelly on the hook got top 15 on the pop charts and top 5 on the R&B charts. But it was his second single that would be released in the winter of 2002 that would take Joe to levels he hadn't seen before. I mentioned that Irv Gotti, who was the mastermind, A&R, and architect of the Murder, Inc. label, had signed a new female artist, Ashanti. And a month before the second single, What's Love, from Fat Joe came out, she dropped a single called Foolish, which took off like a rocket. Foolish was a phenomenon not often seen by R&B artists. And she had the biggest song in the country, 17 weeks in the top 10 on the pop charts. 10 weeks as the number one song in America, Foolish was dominating four charts simultaneously. So it was genius for Irv and Joe to put out What's Love with a hot Ashanti and Ja Rule on the hook. What's Love would be Joe's biggest single to that point in his career. What's Love got the number two on the Hot 100 charts, the pop charts. And the only reason it didn't get to number one was because Ashanti had parked Foolish there for so long at the same time. What's Love became Joe's first global hit, topping the charts throughout Europe. It was also a very positive moment for Joe because of all the love he was getting in the aftermath of Pun's death. 
Joe had always been likable, like I told you a million times so far. There's something you got to know, Kobe Cole. There's a reason why you personally love Fat Joe. It's I've remained humble through my whole career. Mm -hmm. Through ups and downs, through big, through small, whatever, I've always, the number one rule of the game is relationships and to remain humble. The minute you start thinking that you bigger and you God's gift to the game, Mm -hmm. that's when you out of here. They take it away from you. Nah, it's out of here. I I watch artists. I I put one on blast. I watch my man, um, yo! Soldier Boy. Soldier Boy. Right. This guy walked right past Joe Crack. Really? Like he didn't even know I existed on earth. Really? Did you you didn't say nothing to him? He just no, no, no. He walked past. I would have said, "What's up?" Because right, right, you know right. I'm cool like that. Right, right, right. But he just walked right past me. I was like, "Oh, soldier boy." I was at the um Chris Brown Bow Wow concert. They they asked me to come out there and and, and do some songs with them. Mm-hmm. So boom, this guy said, "He won't be around next year." Right, right, right. <laughs> you choose. <laughs> he did make a hell of a hit record. Oh yeah. You know what I'm saying? My daughter likes it. I can't knock nobody. There's bubblegum rap. He made a lot There's of money dope. off of that, too. There's dope rap. There's dope everything. I actually think he's a smart kid. You know what I'm saying? The problem is, you know, you always got to remain humble. His album, Jealous One Still Envy, went platinum, marking another notch of success for Joe. Yo, I'm at least, I'm going for the gold, and after that, the platinum. Uh-oh. <laughs> after that, big dog carries the gat, son. <laughs> <laughs> With a back-to-back gold, then platinum album, Joe's next move was another game changer. Joe was changing different aspects of his life in this period, one of which was getting away from New York and the energy at that time. But also, listen carefully as he predicted the future and talked about longevity in the business. Well, I live in New York and I live in Miami Mm -hmm. as well. So I'm like two weeks in New York, two weeks in Miami. Mm -hmm. The camaraderie... And Miami is exceptional. The people wanting to win is exceptional. Uh, I get a phone call almost every single day by Rick Ross, which, by the way, March 11th, Rick Ross album in stores as well. Trailer, same day, wow. Same day, Joe and okay. Ross. No competition, no funny style. We promote each other's record. Birdman, the same thing. Wayne, the same thing. Khaled, the same thing. We just got mad love for each other. When you go up to New York, it's just a nonstop blizzard of hate, yeah. of everybody hating on each other and just mm-hmm. hating and hating and hating. Somebody comes out with a 16-bar rhyme, and, and and he's the new hot, and he's dissing Jay-Z that week. Like, right, right. It's the most disgusting thing in the world, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So I had to go down there to make my music and spread my wings because, to be honest with you, this is a depressing statement is, you know, New York hip-hop kind of been stale. For a while. For a while. For a while. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You predicted this many years ago with the Jose album. You talked about all this stuff way back then. Matter of fact, Jealous One's Envy is what Jose is about. Jealous One's still Envy. Yeah, and, and now in the in the business, it seems like, you know, um, cats don't necessarily want to work as hard. I mean, I see from a radio standpoint, I see the cats that don't, they see it success. It ain't even now. It yeah. ain't even now. It's but, always been a problem. But they see success, and then they're like, you know, I want that, or I'm better than him. Or people always say that they're better than somebody else, but mm. they don't know the groundwork that the put groundwork, into that, to that artist. man, is, is, is remarkable, man, because out of sight, out of mind, if you ain't got a hit out or something, or you ain't on something hot, you ain't relevant. Right. The biggest problem that I have witnessed with artists in the hip-hop business is them getting high. Mm-hmm. It's been the biggest problem. Wow. So where people have taken advantage of them and mm-hmm. robbed all their money and 
Wow. And, you know, these guys just focusing on getting high. And yeah. being, it's called dependency. It's almost like a, 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 a industry welfare. Preach! Preach! It's almost like an industry welfare to where they're like, all right, yo, could you send me a couple of dollars? Yo, could you do Could you I I've never been like that. I've mm-hmm. always been proactive, not mm-hmm. reactive. Mm-hmm. I've always been, you know, trying to push the envelope and work and work and work and work. And right now at this level, I'm on promo tour. If you don't know what promo tour means, is I'm kissing babies and I'm begging you to buy my new album. And you're paying for this out of your pocket, right? No, I'm paying for this out of my pocket, but that's not the only point. There's no other artist that's on my level. Doing this right now. Right. Most artists, they do this, they first album, get to know people, get their feet wet. Mm-hmm. The label might, might, if he's a cooperative, gas him the second album. Mm-hmm. I'm on my eighth album. I've done it every album. Mm-hmm. I'm gone for a month and a half. No money involved. Actually, I'm spending my own money just to talk to the people, man, and vibe with the people and see what they're saying. So that just lets you know that my work ethic is just too much. If you smoke weed... That's you, baby. You drink whatever. It's on y'all, man. It's, it's, it's y'all decision. The point I'm making is I've watched artists sell 20 million records. Mm-hmm. 20 million. And let's be clear, Fat Joe never been the biggest seller of records. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I have some strange, some strange thing about Fat Joe is that even though he keeps giving you number one hit records, you know, you, you, the same amount of people always go buy my record. 400, 450,000 people go buy my record. For some reason, I should be selling way more. Mm-hmm. But I don't for some I haven't figured this out yet, right? Mm-hmm. But I've sat there with artists who are my friends and sold 20 million records. And people just kept feeding them drugs. And, and they didn't understand what was going on. And now... They're not hot no more. And they're broke. And I got more money than them. Right, right, And I never sold no records like them. Right. If Fat Joe sold 20 million records, he would own the biggest skyscraper in Philly. I was thinking that, yeah. (laughs) The biggest skyscraper. Following up the massive success of Jealous One Still Envy, Joe released Loyalty in November of 2002. The album was rushed and not the same formula of Jose, too, as Joe teamed up with Miami producers Cool and Dre on most of the tracks. This album is crazy right now. I feel like it's the hottest album in the streets. I reviewed everybody else's, man. I'm like, yo, I'm coming with it right uh-oh, now, man. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Yeah, I'm so, coming with it. So what's your, what's your cut? Because every album you got that, that killer cut that you I got a joint called Born with. in the Ghetto that uh, is probably my most favorite song to date that I ever made on an album. It's talking about, you know, things going on in the hood, like the importance of, you know, education, Little kids, you know, the racial profiling situation, you know, the importance of voting, Latinos and blacks coming together, unifying because we're going under the same conditions in every ghetto. You know what I mean? If we learn to think as one, people will respect us if we come out of numbers to vote. But, you know, that's something different for me because, you know, Joe Crack always been a fat gangster. Shoot him up, bang, bang. Right. So I'm real proud about that. Loyalty in stores right now. It wasn't full of hits. But it still sold 700,000 albums. But Joe's next move would elevate his legacy. He would go back in the studio and work with legendary producer Scott Storch, who just had his coming out party on Beyonce's solo debut album, Dangerously in Love. Up until that point, Scott was responsible for producing Baby Boy, Naughty Girl, and Me, Myself, and I. And he had not yet released Let Me Love You from Mario. Scott would collab with the Terror Squad and release the song of 2004 that would take Joe's legacy a notch higher, Lean Back. The intro of the song was a movie. 
The track went so hard. The video was perfect. Joe had a viral dance move before we even knew what viral was. Shit, Joe was dancing. This track was also Remy Ma's coming out party. She rode that track with perfection. Lean Back was a monster. The video featured a slimmed down Joe looking clean, iced up with pink Air Force Ones and a butter leather squad leather. I remember that leather because he gave me one of those jackets. You also see a young Kevin Hart who wasn't a major star yet. The swag was endless in this song. And it was no secret during this time period in his career, Joe had a fear of flying for years and would drive everywhere. But that had all changed now. He was flying in private jets and he had this line in the song, Now we living better now, Kooji sweater now, and that G4 can fly through any weather now. See, niggas get tight when you worth some millions. This is why I sport the chinchilla to hurt their feelings. Man, I love that song. I love just the, the whole movement that he was creating. Lean Back would top the pop, R&B, and hip-hop charts. Joe, Joe Cartagena, the guy from the Bronx, who was a hustler, who discovered a superstar, had become one himself. Here's an example from a historical perspective. On the Billboard all-time chart, this is a chart of all songs created since 1958. Lean Back is number 337. Keep this in mind, there are millions of songs created since 1958. And Joe has a slot on that list. I mean, the number one song of all time on the list is the twist from Chubby Checker. There were some other lines in the song that were controversial. For instance, his line about the rucker. As he leans into DJ K slaying rhymes, K keep telling me to speak about the rucker. Matter of fact, I don't want to speak about the rucker. Not even Pee Wee Kirkland could imagine this. My niggas didn't have to play to win the championship. Rucker Park in Harlem is one of the holiest places for basketball in the world. Every summer, some of the best players from the street, college, and the pros come together to play on this small court in the hood. In the Entertainment Basketball Classic, the teams are sponsored by artists and labels. So Jay-Z's S. Carter team consisted of LeBron James, who was six weeks off of just being drafted number one by the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he was the chosen one, plus Shaq in his prime. People knew about LeBron, but never really saw him play, so this was really highly anticipated. They were in the championship game against Fat Joe's Terror Squad, which consisted of Yao Ming, Carmelo Anthony, and Amari Stoudemire. Fat Joe was a mainstay at the Rucker, winning the championship six years in a row. His record was like 99-1. and In his debut single in 1993, Flojo, he mentioned, So to hell with the Rucker. And he actually took a lot of heat for that. But eventually, he took the Rucker serious for years. 2003 was Jay-Z's first year participating, and he wanted to do it up big. It also happened, though, that night in 2003, there was a massive blackout in New York City, and they could not play the game. The makeup date was Monday, but Jay-Z's team didn't show up. The story goes Jay had plans to get out of town anyway, and that pissed Joe off and started a beef. This was really a one-sided beef because Jay really never said anything about it. Joe did an interview about it, about this, and he was annoyed because Jay-Z was, was rich. He was powerful. He was successful. He kind of had everything. And this Rucker thing was like a Fat Joe thing. And him bringing in a stacked team plus all the shit they was talking and the game never happened. It was disappointing. And we discussed this along with uh, rap legend Moni Love in 2006. And that, and that song, you said something about, um, you said, I don't play ball so, so to hell with so the Rucker. to hell with the Rucker. Isn't that funny how time flies and different things happen? Because within that time, between that and Lean Back, 
and the next rocker mentioned in Lean Back. Between that time, yeah. your basketball team did wonders in the rocker. Let me tell you, we won four. We won the chip this year too. We won four out of the last five years. But let me tell you, there's a section. And the rucker is called 40 and over. Okay. Boy, they won't let me live that line out. They be, I go in there, yeah, to hell with the rucker, huh, John? <laughs> to hell with the rucker. I be like, yo, it was a punchline, baby. It was a punchline. They're like, yeah, all right, Joe. Jay and Fat Joe would definitely get past this. I'll have more on that later on the Backstory Podcast. So back to Lean Back. The song was just so huge, and another line related to this song was in another song Fat Joe did a verse on that year called New York from Ja Rule, which came out in the fall of 2004. Fat Joe, who was cool with everybody, was super cool with boxer Roy Jones Jr. And a few weeks before this song was recorded, Roy Jones was knocked out in September of 2004. This was a major boxing upset. Joe mentioned in his verse, even Roy Jones was forced to lean back. Needless to say, it was too soon and struck a nerve. Roy Jones Jr. was pissed and confronted Joe at a club. And this really could have been a bad situation. I thought me and Joe was cool. He put my name in a song in somewhat of a bad way. I was like, wow, really? That's how we're going to roll? No, I thought we were better than that. You know, he was like, no, it's not bad. You know. First, he was like, it's just a song. I said, no, it ain't just no song. It's me and you. you know, we, we, I thought we was better than that. No, then he was like, no, you write my bad, no, and it won't happen again. I was like, all right, we're cool with that. But I do fight for a living, and I, sometimes right. you lose it. And I think I kind of got upset because I thought he was a friend of mine. Being that it was, was kind of a touchy subject. So to do that and have it come from a guy who I thought or looked upon as a friend kind of bothered me. So that, once again, though, you're almost willing to die for it because I know you had guys with 55, 60 guns around at that time. If they kill me, okay. But I get my point proved. My point would be proved before I die. Like I said, I know he had guys with him that had guns. He was ready to defend himself, and I wasn't tripping about that. As long as I got him, I didn't care about the rest of the guy. They could have got me too, so it would have happened that way. And you got to bring it to get it sometime, but I was willing to die for it. So You see, Roy was going to put it all on the line. That's so fascinating that he took it that seriously. Joe had a mess of dudes with him and could tell Roy was ready to knock him out. And he told Roy. I got 150 guys with guns, and they will not let that happen. Thankfully, it was pieced up. It just shows you how beloved Joe was and that a boxer friend's feelings was really hurt from a line in a song. Another beef byproduct of New York was 50 Cent. He was in a heated beef with Ja Rule and Murder, Inc. Now, you can go back to my backstory episode with 50 Cent, and you can hear all about the story between Ja Rule, Murder, Inc., Irv Gotti, and 50 Cent. And 50 felt that Joe doing the New York song was a diss to him. And then 50 started a beef with Joe that would go on for almost eight years. The final and most successful Terror Squad album, True Story, would go on to sell two million copies, solidifying Joe as a big artist and label mogul who makes big hits. But unfortunately, it was the beginning of the end of the Terror Squad crew as infighting and anger led to several feuds many had with Joe. It's tough being a leader, especially a leader of creative talents. The most disappointing of the differences he was having with Terror Squad members had to be Remy Ma, who had ventured off on a solo career with some success on the East Coast thanks to a very good debut album, There's Something About Remy. She was on her way to creating her own tremendous success, but along the way would end up in a physical altercation that would lead to a shooting, arrest, conviction, and eight-year sentence, ending her solo career. 
But there was a comeback. More on that later. The following year, Joe released All or Nothing with another all-star cast of producers like Swiss Beats, Cool and Dre, The Runner, Scott Storch, and DJ Khaled. One cut that got a lot of attention was My Fofo, which was a diss to 50 Cent. Joe and 50 continued to be at odds, even though they both had mutual respect and a special relationship with Chris Lighty, who was the instrumental manager in both of their careers. The nigga never shot a fair one with nobody in his life. Never. Oh, he'd been a stabbed and shot and ratted, and I don't understand. I don't understand. That just that just tells you how the rest of the industry is, you know what I mean? So yeah, I told him over 10,000 times, tell me where, my nigga, we can go just, we, we can end this all, man. We just can knuckle up. The album produced a gold top 10 hit. Get it popping with Nelly, but overall didn't generate the kind of sales his previous albums did. This was his final album with Atlantic Records and would be the beginning of Joe's move to becoming an independent artist. The least I really do is like 400. So mm-hmm. seven times four, it starts getting real um, economical. No, uh, yeah, it's a good look. Yeah, it starts and getting that's the future. serious. That's the future. It's the future of hip-hop right yep. now. You see Jim Jones, does everybody. I mean, the Dirty South guys, they damn near invented it. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been doing it. That's who put me onto game. Mm-hmm. One day I, I was signed to Atlantic for eight, nine years, and then I started talking to Jay Prince. Okay. An all-star weekend, and he was like, yo, man. You need to tell them, you know what I'm saying, that I'll uh, hook you up with this independent situation. Mm-hmm. And I told them, they was like, yo, man, we're giving you 80 cents a record. Why would we give you $7 a record? I was like, well, you know what? I got the bounce. In 2006, Joe would move his Terror Squad label over to Virgin Records Imperial with a very creative, unique deal that we discussed. Well, my situation is where I went to Virgin so they could give us the independent distribution. But at the same time, if my records start really blowing, they got a full staff and radio team that they could also help me as well. Okay. It, it, it was uh, the best scenario ever. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It was a great look. You have a whole different mindset now about the business. Different right? mindset, a different grind. It's no luxury. You know what I'm saying? Everything is just that grind out. You know, I put up my own money mm-hmm. to make it pop. Put up my own money for the video, for the team. Got my own staff together, you know. So it's like I'm the sheriff. I'm the deputy. I'm the um, the plaintiff. You know, I'm the <laughs> I'm everybody. I'm wearing all the hats. And you feed a, a lot, lot of more people. work. It's a lot more work. I'm feeding a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more work. But you know, at the end, God willing, you know what I'm saying. You know, Joe Cracker be smiling at the end of this. All right. And then you figure this is my first time I did this independent, so it'll be smoother when we when we drop artists and all that on through the independent circuit. Joe would release its seventh album entitled "Me, Myself, and I." Once again, he partnered with producer Scott Storch, who by this time had a string of big hits, including Work With 50 Cent, Joe's Rival. He gave 50 Cent's big songs like Candy Shop and Just a Little Bit. Scott delivers a gem to Fat Joe, taking him to another level. Make It Rain featuring Lil Wayne, which would be another monster record for Joe, going platinum and reaching his highest 13 on the pop charts, scoring Joe a Grammy nomination. One of the Grammys, we nominated for a Grammy, but they jerk me every year. What's, what song you nominated for? Make It Rain, Best Make Collabo. Make It Rain, Best Collabo. Yeah, yeah, they jerk me every year. So the record label, you know, they gas me, yo, go, you got to go. Right. It's so important. I'm like, yo, dog, they're going to jerk me again. Right. Black Eyed Peas! <laughs> Lupe Fiasco! <laughs> you know. <laughs> As you can see, Joe is really honest. And he continues with this formula. 
At this stage in his career, he was 13 years in, which is a lifetime in hip-hop. 2006 hip-hop now. What's the biggest difference? Big difference is unity. Okay. Uh, back then, we all loved each other. Back then, we would all come to each other's videos. Back then, you asked anybody to do a song with you that you like. No one would even charge money. Now it's more of a business. Now it's more divide and conquer in this business to where, oh, I'm down with him or you down with you and we can't work together or whatever the case may be. And, and, and politics, you know what I'm saying? As far as like, you know, the style of music, you know, you've been on radio. Like it's certain records you got to make now yeah. if you want to get played on the radio yeah. all day. You it's understand different, what different I'm saying? Game, yeah. It's much different. Before they was hard. Um, na, 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 come follow me right. on the journey of a real, real right. MC. Yeah. And it, you know what I'm saying? So it, it was different then and now. In this particular interview you're hearing clips from, we had played some of his older songs, and he had this observation listening to old Fat Joe. I'm sitting here with Joe and Heavy Hitter. You were taking him down memory lane. Because mm. the one thing Joe was sitting here saying, what? he's like his voice, like listening to his voice, how different his voice is <laughs> sounding over the years. And it's, it's, it's amazing how your voice just And just changes. lyrically, I could see, I seen where I could where I could have flowed way better. I hope you're enjoying the Backstory Podcast. This is the story of Fat Joe. And he shows Philly love. And the one thing I love about Fat Joe when he comes to Philly is, uh, and you did this years ago with me. He was like, Cope, just come with me. He said, park your car and come with me. I get in the car with Joe, and that was when your third or fourth album came out. And we just rode around in the hood, blasting your album, just pulling up on corners on cats, blasting they your They love me. They love me. I love but Philly. But that's real. Not, rap, not that, many rappers do that. It's that real love. And I'm sorry, everybody, this year, I go every year to the Puerto Rican Day Parade, but they kind of, like, got to me early and try to ban me. Like, they was okay. like, yo, Joe, you're not going to do it this year. You're not. You know, because every year I walk through the whole parade, no float, no nothing. We walk through, we cause the biggest... Uh, uproar in the world so right. they started giving me warning fair warning ahead of time like yo you ain't gonna pull that off this year mm-hmm. you ain't gonna be walking through the streets with like about 10,000 people behind <laughs> you but I love my Boricuas out there my Latinos out there you know what it is that was the story of how Joe and I went to the hood I've been doing this for a long time and Fat Joe is probably the most engaged rapper with the community I've ever worked with Not just the Bronx. Wherever he goes, he goes to the hood to touch the people, which is why I believe he has had longevity. He's been in the game longer than Hove, and Hove has been around for a while. And they both are still relevant. Longevity is about loving the music and loving and having a passion for making music, wanting to be hot, wanting to prove. See, with me, nobody never really truthfully gave me my just do like that. When you start telling people, who's your favorite rapper? You know, they don't really put me up there like that. Right, right, right. So that's why I keep smacking them with lean backs and make it rains and, mm-hmm. and, and just because cause I feel relentless. I feel like I am determined to make people say, this guy's a legend. Wow. He brought many to the game. And until they actually bow out gracefully, I'm talking about the haters, I will continue to give you an onslaught. Joey has an ingredient that all the other greats, any other great that you can think of that is putting that legend on bracket, he has the same ingredient that they have, and that is he's a fan. Tupac, fan, hoes, fan, big, fan, pun, fan. You understand what I'm saying? They're all fans of the game. All yeah. the famous. All right. Yeah, but I'll be listening, though, man. That's I give up. it up. I give it up. Like right now, my favorite rapper is Lil Wayne. Okay. You know what I'm saying? That's why he's Honestly, rain. yeah, but just he's my favorite rapper. Okay. Because he's bringing it and he got them flows and he's crazy. So sometimes I listen to him right now and I get amazed and I'm like, damn, that killing right. it. Right. Like if I don't come like that, 
I'm through. Uh-oh. You know what I mean? So that's how that 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 that's how I look at it. Joe is also a family man, which he always shares, and probably another reason why he has longevity. He and his wife have been together since the beginning of his career, and he credits her for being by his side and supporting him, especially when he had nothing. I got somebody called the police woman. Who's my wife? Wifey, who yeah. Tends to all the videos, and if she's not there, <laughs> she has a surveillance crew close by. Was that your wife in the argument scene in the bathroom when the when the girls Hell were talking about no. you? My wife is so incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something. My girl is so mean and vicious, cold. It's out of control. And and you know I gotta stay in line, man. I can't. I hear you you man. know I can't really look. Too How many much. years you been married, man? Thirteen years we've been together. Wow. Thirteen years. You wow, know? that's a lot of time. Not 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 a lot of rappers can say that. Stay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And be in a situation household. like that. Yeah. But you know I take care of that girl. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very very take care of her. I was telling the Tina how me and my girl, man, we might as well just share it for the world. How when I met her, I didn't have no money. I used to sleep in the apartment in the Bronx. Mattress on the floor, radio, TV. I had no money. So she used to have to borrow from her father to bring home some money sometimes when we had to eat. You know what I'm saying? And she is so fly. I know people was looking at me like, yo, this fat guy, how he bagged this bad (laughs) chick right here, man? Let alone she's holding him down. You know what I'm saying? So that's why I give her the world now that we got the world Cause she thugged it off with me when we ain't had nothing. That's real, so I Joe. Give her whatever she That's wants, real. my brother. That's, That's what real. it is, man. Joe's next album in 2008 was Elephant in the Room, which had the same formula of producers, and he was reaping the benefits of being independent, garnering seven dollars an album sold. At this stage, Joe had been around for 15 years. The last five years, he had a string of big hits, not just on the R&B charts, but on the pop charts, which most rappers never get a chance to see. Why wasn't he getting the respect he earned? He had improved every year and built a solid foundation in hip-hop. Fat Joe was the elephant in the room in hip-hop. It's the perfect album title for him at that time. The room is hip-hop music. The elephant is me. Mm -hmm. So all the time, you know, people, they rate my albums, the critics. They say Joe stepped it up crazy. His album is phenomenal right now. He's killing it right now. This new album is crazy. And give me the same rating. Mm-hmm. When they do countdowns, top 10 best rappers, you know, they they, they they talk about everybody in the game, but they must not be watching TV mm-hmm. or turning on the radio because somebody, the elephant, is spinning on the radio all day. He's mm-hmm. on TV all day. And you got you better see, with time. Like, a lot of people can't absolutely. say that. I think I'm the most improved rapper ever in the history mm-hmm. of rap music, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. That's a justifiable uh, claim I make. You know, I stepped it up my whole career, been working progress. Most of the time you have an artist who comes out, has a hit record or whatever the case may be, and we think he's the new dude. And by the second album, the album's whack. We never hear from this guy right, again. Right. I mean, we we could talk over 10,000 names. We could just run them down the list. The story right? of the industry. When you listen to Fat Joe, eight albums in every single time, I have a hit record. This time last year, it was Make It Rain. Yeah. The year before that, it was uh, Get It Poppin', even yep. though it was kind of pop. Right. But it was a smash hit, 30-something right. thousand spins. Right. The year before that, Lean Back. Right. The year before that, What's Love? Right. Like, you know, I just keep giving you hit records, but still I don't feel like I get my just due. Mm-hmm. And right now, I feel like I'm one of the best doing it, to be honest with you. I don't see nobody really coming that much harder. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Besides a little Wayne right now. A hand, handful, a handful mm-hmm. of rappers 
could, you know, even be on my level of what of what I'm doing, man, with my consistency. My consistency. Consistency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested. He led with a single, I Won't Tell, featuring the up-and-coming R&B star at that time, Jay Holiday. And uh, what what made you connect with a Jay Holiday? Because he's kind of a new cat in the game right now. Natina. Natina. Yeah, well, I knew Natina was. Natina said, she said. And hold on, Natina is the record rep for, is it Capital Virgin? What do y'all call yourselves? Capital, Capital Music now. So she's a, she's the record rapping and uh, Jay Holiday is on Capitol Records and he just had a huge success two it was, number ones. No, no, it was actually before Bed. Mm-hmm. So she played me Bed before it blew up and she was like, "Yo, this dude is crazy." I listened. I was like, "Yo, this is a hit." Mm-hmm. And she was like, "Yo, Joe, give him a shot. Put him on a record." Because I was thinking maybe all Kelly or something. And then I was like, "You know what? Let's give him a shot." And he blew it down crazy. So I was like, "Yo, B." This is it right here, man. And the video is real hot, man. You know, that was my concept. I put that together. I wanted to do something like a Biggie One More Chance where we was just having fun. The vibes was dope. Everybody was having fun. All my friends come through, and we having a great time. This was also the beginning period of a drastic downslide in music sales as things started to shift digitally. Artists that would sell big numbers in the first week suddenly were off 50 to 80%. The economy was also in the beginnings of a deep recession. Joe would follow up Elephant in the Room with Jealous One's Still Envy 2, which was delayed several times before its release. Sales were worse for Joe on this album. So that's when you ask yourself, was this it? Was this the end of his run? He had had an incredible run, so if it was, he couldn't be mad. We talked about his legacy as an artist up until that point. All the things that go on, and, and Fat Joe's got a lot of stories to tell. He's a veteran of the music game Big and still time. making records. You started in 93. It's 2007 now. You're still we, making we, records. Not many people can say that they have done that. We're coming into top 10 in America right now with I Won't Tell featuring okay. Jay Holiday. Mm-hmm. It's, we're closing in on that top 10. We believe it might be a number one in America. And this is, you know, this is what we do. Joe will become a free agent again after his Virgin Imperial deal. But as I mentioned earlier, he always acted like a mogul. And during this time period, most artists were latched to the major label system. They looked at the major labels as the standard and anything independent was weak. Joe was always playing checkers, not chess. He bet on himself and understood that if he self-financed his deal as an indie, he would get a much bigger chunk of every record sold. It just so happens that the man that signed him to his first deal at Relatively Records, Alan Grunblatt, was overseeing an independent label called Koch, which is now known as E1. And Alan worked out a distribution deal with Joe, who also would bring Alan artists, including DJ Khaled, who gave Koch one of their biggest hits that they still make millions off of today, All I Do Is Win. Joe released three albums over the next few years, The Dark Side Volume 1, 2, and 3. All of these albums didn't have much success. However, his 2012 single, Another Round with Chris Brown, was a top five hit and went gold. Sadly, the man who was instrumental in his career and industry icon, Chris Lighty, would pass away in 2012. It was a big blow to everyone, but to Fat Joe and 50 Cent, two artists launched by Chris, it was devastating. It would also heal their beef, which went on way too long. It's now 2013. We're 20 years away from Flo Jo and his debut album, Represent. Most artists would love a 20-year career, and Fat Joe proved his value as an MC, mogul, and culture creator. But Joe had bigger problems, not with music, but with the IRS. He was convicted of tax evasion and was forced to serve four months in jail. You would think this is how the story ends. 
uh-uh, not for Fat Joe. He is a survivor, a fighter, and never bet against Joey Crack. He appeared on a few more songs, including a Digging in the Crates track. But in this movie, there has to be a happy ending. And in 2016, Joe, now on the largest independent digital label, Empire Records, would reunite with Remy, who was now out of jail. And together, they would deliver another anthem all the way up, which would soar up the charts, uniting several generations of hip-hop fans, going double platinum, and garnering a Grammy nomination. Oh, and remember that beef with Jay-Z? That was squashed too, as Jay-Z jumped on the remix and helped take the song to another level. Remy and Fat Joe would do a complete album together, Plateau Oploma, and they would perform and win Song of the Year at the BET Awards. I just happened to be at that BET Awards and be at a restaurant where they came in after the show and I captured this video of them. Joe continues to be one of my favorite people in the business. Remy would go on and sign a new deal with a major label and pick up where she left off before she went to jail. Before we go, how about one more Fat Joe story? Happy Feet. I'm watching Happy Feet. Call Tim. Stop playing. Seymour. (laughs) Seymour. See what happened, Cole? That was so cool, though. Let me tell you what happened, Rappers don't get opportunities like that. Look, I did Happy Feet. The problem is, Mm -hmm. we never did the paperwork. So now, they've made maybe a half a billion dollars off of Happy Feet. You didn't get a check off of Happy Feet? Hold up, hold up. Okay. Boy, they're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Because now, I know what it made. Before, I could have been like, ah, we don't know if this is going to blow up. Just give me a check right quick, whatever. Now, I'm like, yo, B, I need the points. Mm -hmm. I need the money. I need the this. I need the that. And my, I am in the movie. Like, right, that right. is Fat and Joe. And your name is on so it. Yeah, you the sold a half a million, so I need this now. Like, like you know, it's already done. Now, this is what I want. And if not, we're going to have to go to court, guys. Wow. Because I never signed nothing. Right. So they pulled you in the recorders and you didn't sign nothing? I did the whole movie and I didn't sign nothing. Why did you do that in general? Like, usually you you, you would cover See, something like it that. because it, it was... It was uh, introduced by a friend a friend of mine was like yo do this right here and they they was down with atlantic i was down with atlantic at the time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. atlantic did the soundtrack and all that so it was all good Mm -hmm. then i then i realized one day i was watching happy feet and i called my management i was like yo we never caught a check for happy feet he was Mm -hmm. like oh let me hold up let me see let me see yo we still in paperwork so i said "Mm." they messed up doesn't he have the best stories okay let's do one more Here's another really good one. You went to the Bahamas, which is Michael Jordan's favorite place away from the States. He got the stupidest house on the beach over there. Yeah? And he stays, all jokes aside, he stays there two days a year. Really? He got a house that me and you Mm -hmm. would, like, (laughs) eat off the floors. Like, we would be like, yo, I I would never leave. Right. I would never go nowhere. Right. So you went there for his golf tournament, right? Absolutely. You know... Me and MJ got a certain relationship, man. Okay. You know, we good peoples, man. He always shows me love, man. He invited me to come down and hang out with him, man. And and um, it's a privilege to even know the guy that I put his name and, and, and him on my feet every day. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? How did you so, build this relationship with him? 
we met, and you know I'm a big, big, big sneaker collector, mm-hmm. and I met, and we just started kicking it, and then he was like, yo, Joe flying to Vegas, and you know, he tells me all the time he don't really rock with, with hip-hop artists like that, mm-hmm. but you know, he really rocks with me. Mm-hmm. So you know, he invites me to stuff. That that event is actually, he invited me and paid for for everything. Oh, he, he paid for y'all to come out no, there? No, he paid for everything, like, yo, Joe, paying for you to come down, bring your wife, do it up big out here. Whatever. He paid for everything, oh, man. man. You know, my life, I've been real blessed, man, throughout my career to meet some of the most interesting people in the world and work with some of the most interesting people in the world. I used to pay for the cheapest ticket in Madison Square Garden when uh, Jordan used to play the Knicks. And the guy was like this big. Right, real time. Like, like, like we was all the way up in the super nosebleeds. Mm-hmm. Damn near on the roof. You know, on the roof mm-hmm. where the guy was no bigger than your nail on your finger right now. Like, I, I we couldn't even understand if he was dribbling the ball or not. Right. To actually, you know, hanging out with him and being cool with him. Is At his crib in the Bahamas. It's major. Wow. Yeah. He hung out with Michael Jordan. How cool is that? The Backstory Podcast is a pod is good production. Written, produced, and created by yours truly, Colby Cole. Edited by DJ OnePlus2. Support our Patreon page and check out the Lost Backstory Podcast episode, Too Hot to Post. And please leave a review. Coming up on the next Backstory Podcast, it will require you to do a little homework. If you haven't listened to the first Backstory episode, Jay-Z, The Making of a Mogul, where I chronicle Jay-Z's early days up until a second album, or my Blueprint Hove episode where I chronicle Jay-Z's third album through the Blueprint. Up next will be Jay-Z, 10 Years In, where I chronicle the Black album and his retirement from the game and ascension to label president. In any company, you're going to have your success and your failure. That's just life. That's just life in general. I think a lot of times people have a problem with me being the president and their pair also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but it's really backwards, you know, because, you know, it's, it's, it's a really strange mentality because you rather work for a guy who uh, doesn't understand the culture, mm-hmm. 50 years old, 60 years old. And, you know, it's just that mentality. It's just, it's, so it's, it's weird for me. Thanks for listening to the Backstory Podcast. I'm Colby Cole.